Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, part two of Mormonism and the Rules of Evidence. I am very happy to have back with me again once more my good friend and fellow attorney, Colby Reddish from Idaho. How are you doing today, Colby? I'm doing well this morning. How are you? Well, I'm doing great. So we did one part, the first part of Mormonism and the Rules of Evidence. We put it out there to see if there was any interest in a part two. And much to my surprise, there was a great deal of interest in a part two. What what kind of feedback have you been getting about part one of this show? Yeah, I've gotten a lot of emails um, or Reddit messages, a lot of actually a few comments on the blog that I had mentioned. So I've, I was actually kind of excited to see how many people were super interested in it. Um, there were a few people who called us to repentance just for being lawyers, uh, both of us. Well, that's I understandable. Thought, <laughs> yeah. And that actually, I have an opening quote um, to kind of go hand in hand with that call to repentance. So Joseph Smith said on June 30th, 1843, do not employ lawyers or pay them for their money, for their knowledge, for I have learned they don't know anything. I know more than they all. And I thought that was probably a good opening quote for today's part two. Do you really think Joseph Smith knew more than all the lawyers? I am absolutely certain that Joseph Smith thought he knew more than all the lawyers. It's a remarkable thing because although we're not going to go into it now, Joseph Smith has quite a history of hiring attorneys to defend him in court. That's right. It's the thing about attorneys is we're kind of like Dennis. Uh, nobody really likes us until they need us. <laughs> That's right. Oh, and there's another great quote, of course, from Shakespeare. You know the one I'm going for, right? Henry the Sixth, Part Two. The Dick first the thing butcher. we do, let's kill all the lawyers. What did you just say? I said Dick the Butcher, right? Oh my gosh, you're amazing me. <laughs> we didn't talk about this beforehand. Dick the Butcher. The first thing we do, let's kill all the lawyers. So that frequently gets quoted to express people's animus toward persons of our profession. And yet, of course, in context, it actually means the opposite because the person who's saying it is Dick the Butcher. And he's not just a butcher down there cleaving apart pieces of pigs and cows and chickens and things. No, he's a human butcher. That's the butcher that Dick is. And this is a group of people who are going to overthrow the government at the time. This is what's going on. And Dick the Butcher is one of these people. Of course, it's Jack Cade, a famous character who's leading them all. And Dick the Butcher says, the first thing we do, let's kill all the lawyers. Because they recognize that lawyers are part of an orderly society. And if we can get rid of all the lawyers, then we can just do it what it is that we want to do and have our government, which they, I don't think they ever quite established, but they tried awful hard. Um, we can have our government be a dictatorship where we can do whatever we want. And in order to do that, let's get rid of those lawyers. And that would be a good first step. Is that your understanding of it, Colby? Yeah, that's exactly the way I've heard that quote used before, is that lawyers, um, as a profession, they contribute to the concept we I usually call the rule of law, which is just that no man is above the rules. We live in a society, and it's mentioned in one of the... Um, I can't remember if we talked about the case last time or if it was just in some of the blog entries I've been working on, but there's this seminal case that all lawyers learn about in their first semester of law school. It's uh, Marbury versus Madison. And it has to do with the, it ultimately today stands for the proposition that the judiciary decides what the law stands for. It's that quote from the case is engraved on the United States Supreme Court building. 
And it very specifically in that opinion talks about how the United States is a government of laws and not of men. And I think that goes hand in hand with this quote from uh, Henry VI, that if you want to have a government of laws and not of men, you need lawyers to help set that up. Well, I would love to get into Marbury versus Madison with you, but we've already spent enough time probably introducing the show. I know that there were a few comments and questions that people had made from the first show that you wanted to respond to here. Yeah, I did. So the first, the first um, little note that I wanted to to tie up was the first concept we decided we discussed last time was the idea of the doctrine of chances, and it related to four hundred four B evidence and the use of Joseph Smith's magical artifacts. So one aspect of the outline that I missed uh, that I wanted to highlight is that these magical artifacts, in my mind, Colby, are Colby. I'm sorry for people who it might have been a while since they listened. Could you just give the thumbnail of the argument you made? about Joseph Smith and the Doctrine of Chances in 300 words or less? Yeah, I can do that. So I think really the Doctrine of Chances is this uh, legal doctrine that allows for um, parties, particularly the state, to offer evidence of similar related conduct. The 404B provides an... a or for rule 404 provides a protection against what's known as propensity evidence. It's the argument that, well, because so-and-so was charged with the DUI two years ago, they probably committed the DUI today. That's That would be impermissible um, propensity evidence. Now, there's an exception for um, that falls under Rule 404. And what that allows for is an exception for things that are a common plan, motive, scheme. And this all of this evolves out of this legal concept that came from Britain known as the doctrine of chances. And that case, I think the best way to just summarize it is to, to give the example of the case where it comes from, which is a defendant was charged with uh, strangling his wife in the bath or drowning his wife in the bath. He alleges that she passed out. The backstory is that he has two other wives, I believe that had the same weird circumstance. And so the doctrine of chances just kind of stands for this general proposition of, you know, what are the odds? What are the odds that the story makes sense? And it allows for that. I think importantly, it allows for that evidence to go in front of the jury when normally it would not. And so the way we connected that to Joseph Smith is that Joseph Smith finds over and over and over again, these independent magical artifacts. So we have multiple seer stones, the Urim and Thummim, the, the Sword of Laban, the plates, the Book of Abraham papyrus, the Book of Joseph or the Joseph's papyrus. He has visions with Moses. He has visitations from heavenly beings. And so that's really the concept that we talked about last time. Now, um, several um, people pointed out some of these weren't independent, and that's true, but many of them also were. They came out of completely separate stories. So obviously, you know, like the Liahona the sword of Laban and the plates were all in the same stone box that, you know, magically disappears after um, people look for it. Um, Actually, I think it disappeared before they looked for it. <laughs> yeah, I guess that assume we're making an assumption that there was a stone box and um, saying that it disappeared. But did you know there's some actually there's some writing on the hilt of the sword of Laban? I did not know that. That no, comes says, from Brigham, right? No, it says on the hilt, it says, whosoever pulleth out this sword from this stone box is right wise born king of the entire world. <laughs> oh, that's great. Thank you. So one of the things with this um, with this magical artifact thinking or this magical worldview that I think it presents a classic double bind. And what I mean by that is a double bind is really just 
an unpalatable choice between two equally problematic alternatives. And what I mean is you either to accept these stories that Joseph Smith has with the, the, the magical roots, you either have to believe that this magic exists, which then leads to a question why don't the prophets and apostles use these magical artifacts today? Because they still possess some of those. Right. And can I back you up a second? Because I interrupted you at a very no, bad time. Absolutely. Mainly your argument had been that Joseph Smith claims he keeps stumbling over or encountering all of these different magical artifacts or supernatural visitations, whatever it may be. And that the doctrine of chances suggests that that's very unlikely that the same person is going to continue to encounter all of these different things. The pushback that you got was that if Joseph Smith is a prophet and God is directing him, then of course he's the focal point that the divine beings are giving these things to. And so therefore that accounts for why it is this doesn't violate the doctrine of chances. That's the pushback you got, correct? Yeah. And most people, there was some pushback on the pushback, but to me, the pushback that we received, that's where you get into this double bind, where <clears throat> if the prophet apostles today have Joseph Smith's seer stone, and the seer stone really worked for Joseph, because that's part of this pushback, right? Is yes, these magical artifacts actually work, and Joseph Smith was the the, the central locus of all of these things. Then you're left with the question, just, well, then why don't they use it today, right? That's what I think creates the double bind. Right, sometimes known as a Hobson's choice, a choice between two equally unattractive options. Right. So we also had a follow-up uh, question that we'll talk about near the end today. That was a question that came in on Reddit, and it really talked about discussing using these ideas with active members of the church who may or may not know about some of the historical issues and problems. And so we're going to talk about that last as we talk really about overarching ideas of burden of proof, evidentiary standards, what is the the commonly um, applied burden of proof fallacy that I see all the time in Mormon apologetics. And then the third um, little introductory comment that we wanted to talk about is we had some questions about evaluating the credibility and the credibility of testimony and the concept of impeachment evidence. And so that's where we're going to start. And we're going to start today by talking about what uh, type of evidence or what type of testimony, excuse me, is accepted in a courtroom. So one of the important things, um, and RFM, you had added this into our notes last time that we didn't get to. So one of the important qualifications that's required for a witness's testimony is that a witness has to be testifying about their personal knowledge. And so that is in rule of evidence 602. Did you want to introduce this concept? Well, sure. This is something that's very basic in the law, and it's something that's violated over and over on the first Sunday of every month in fast and testimony meetings throughout the world. Speaking from a legal perspective, a witness is somebody who is testifying as to something generally. That, <laughs> I'm sorry, everything in law is, it depends, right? But generally, a witness testifies, a lay witness testifies to things that that witness has seen or heard or perceived in some way directly. And it's only because they have seen something or perceived it that they are able to be able to testify, that they qualify to be a witness who can testify in court. Yeah, and I think the related rule that's kind of the flip side of the same coin 
is the concept of hearsay. And there are lots of legal protections or presumptions, really, that hearsay will not come into courtroom testimony. And again, as you said, that super depends. There's a whole handful of hearsay exceptions. But the idea of hearsay is that I go into a courtroom and testify about something that RFM told me. That basically the idea of, of telephone, <laughs> that the testimony might change based on how many hands it's passed through. And again, there are a lot of exceptions for hearsay, but I think this, this rule that requires personal knowledge for, to be the basis of a witness's testimony and the rule against hearsay or the presumption against hearsay, they kind of go hand in hand to say, this is what we look for in testimony is for the person to be able to come and testify um, up to, about things that they actually personally know or perceived. Right. One of the, one of the other protections, and then we'll kind of talk about how these relate to Mormonism. I think one of the other protections um, that's built into our trial procedure is also the idea of cross-examination. So when a witness is called, they're called by one side of a case and they're going to testify on what's called direct examination. During direct examination, there's certain rules about what they can and can't be asked. So for example, on direct examination, you typically are not allowed to lead the witness, which is ask them a question that suggests the answer. Um, a common debate I've seen all the time in courtrooms is they teach in law schools that a yes or no question is often a leading question. And it can be, but it also cannot be. Sometimes it just is a legitimate question. And so that's a, a recurring debate um, about what a leading question is. But that's kind of a side issue. And a lot of times they start with, isn't it true that, or isn't it correct that? So sometimes I've even objected before the question was out because I knew it was going to be leading. The judge says, okay, Mr. RFM, wait until the question's asked. I wait until the question's asked. Of course, it's leading. Then I object and I'm sustained. Yeah, I think the best example of a leading question, the way I would often do it is when I'm when I'm cross-examining someone, I am the one speaking. And so I will basically say what I want them to either agree or disagree with. And I will often end that with yes or no. And that way I am making very clear. I only expect them to give me a yes or no, because on cross-examination, you are supposed to ask leading questions. Very often, that's all you want to ask because it gives you more control as an attorney over what they're being, what what testimony is going to come out of your questioning. But let's talk more about cross-examination. So cross-examination is this idea that after the witness gets the chance to tell their side of the story, they are subjected to cross-examination where the other side's attorney gets the chance to ask questions like we just talked about. Oftentimes, they're direct. They're going to be trying to I don't want to say tear apart in like a like they're going to be mean to the witness, but they're trying to do their job and ferret out the truth that this witness has and see if there's any inconsistencies. They don't just I think the bottom line is it doesn't allow a witness to just tell their side of the story on direct examination and then not be subjected to difficult questions from the other side. Right. That's the whole thing. As soon as you take the stand to testify and tell your side of things, you also have to agree to be tested by cross-examination and be prepared for that, hopefully. But you don't just get to come up there, say your side of things, and then get up and leave the stand. Like you said, how many times have you seen a witness start to get up and leave the stand after direct examination? Because they think it's all done. And then the judge says, no, no, you're not done yet. Mr. RFM has some questions for you. Yeah, I I probably have seen that a few times. I think usually... um... 
since most of my trial work, I was the prosecutor. I had told my witnesses that they were going to be subjected to cross-examination. So they didn't take it too much as a surprise, but maybe I was just a better prosecutor than some of the ones you go up against every day. Well, you're a prosecutor. You've got a bunch of professional witnesses. Yeah, that's true. I'm talking about law enforcement who get trained how to testify and things like that. By the way, I want to pick up on that and just say that one of the primary reasons that hearsay is not admissible in court, that you can't say what somebody else told you, is because that deprives me, as opposing counsel, of the ability to cross-examine on that statement. If you're saying that somebody else told you something and that somebody else is not even going to be testifying in court, I have no ability to test that story because the person you're repeating it from isn't testifying. Yeah, that's exactly right. And lest anyone think that we're just talking about cross-examination and the way that witness testimony goes just from our perspective of this is the way we've typically seen it, I think it's important to say this cross-examination piece actually comes from a constitutional hook, right? It is the confrontation clause that allows for particularly a criminal defendant the opportunity to do this. They have a right to do this, to be con- to confront the witnesses who have testified against them. Right, exactly. All right, so we've talked about that. Where do you want to go from there? So let's talk about how those two things connect to Mormonism. I think you talked about how every day or every uh, fast Sunday, we hear testimonies that probably do not accord with personal knowledge. What did you have in mind there? No, that's a great point. Because we use in Mormonism courtroom terminology. And I think we do it in order to try and give strength and power to what it is that we're talking about when we testify, when we bear our testimony. We even say testimony. We say, I testify that, or I am a witness that, blah, 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 right? The problem is, is that that's just a conclusion saying, I'm testifying that this is true. Well, that has skipped a number of steps. And it's also allowed the witness to make the final conclusion. The witness should be testifying about things that the witness has personally experienced and not trying to put an interpretation through speculation on that experience. But frequently what I see in testimony meeting is, well, actually, if you're going to do it the way the church has encouraged members to do, is just to say, I know the church is true. I know the Book of Mormon is true. I know Joseph Smith was a prophet. I know that the president today, which is right now Russell Nelson, is a prophet of God. And I know that Jesus is the son of God. I think those are the five points of the testimony glove. But none of those statements would be admissible in court. And the reason why is twofold, because... You're not testifying as to what you have experienced. You're testifying to your conclusion, presumably based upon an experience that you're not sharing with the audience. Yeah, I think that's a great example. I think the other example I would give um, of how especially this lack of personal knowledge or the requirement for personal knowledge before testimony comes active in Mormonism is, you know, the last time I went to a sacrament meeting. Um, and for years and years, both sacrament meeting and then um, priesthood and relief society lessons were all based on um, conference talks. They were, which are often recycled from other conference talks. And so the way this connects in my mind is that when we're required to testify from personal knowledge, it requires you to really think about the things you you know and It's okay in a courtroom to testify about your conclusion, but you're often going to have to lay the foundation that got you to that conclusion, right? And I think one of the reasons, or I'm afraid that one of the reasons that the 
brethren so often ask members just to work from conference talks is they don't really want members substantially digging, digging in and dealing with the scriptures or really dealing with their own personal spiritual experiences. It's a lot of keep trusting us, keep relying on us. And it's, it's actually inviting people not to engage in this uh, pursuit of personal knowledge. And I'm sure there will be members that would counter and say, no, they tell us all the time to, to read our scriptures and look, but I mean, really, if, if you were asked to prepare a talk, like a sacrament talk or a lesson completely absent of any guidance from the church, from conference talks, I feel like you would get much, you would probably get in some cases much worse lessons, but you probably in other cases would get much better lessons. But I think you would get people who are much more studious and committed to figuring these things out. What do you think about that? I vote for better lessons because I can't tell you the number of times I've been in sacrament meeting and hearing a member of the church get up there and they were assigned to go over a conference talk. And nine times out of 10, they always do the same thing. They say, well, I can't say it any better than elder so-and-so said it. So now I'm going to read it. And every time a member says, I can't say it any better than elder so-and-so said it, the thought comes to my mind, anybody could say it better than elder so-and-so said it. So please don't read the talk. Just tell us what you think about the talk. Right. Yeah. And connect the talk to your life. That's, I think, what resonates with people. I had one particular sacrament meeting where I'm not kidding. The guy read the entire talk, I think, like for the first time extemporaneously on the stand. Mm. And he even concluded by saying, well, I'll just go ahead and read. And it was a talk from Elder Bednar. I'll just go ahead and read Elder Bednar's testimony. And he read the closing testimony and that was it. He just ended. It was one of the most awkward talks I've ever heard. I think the other, you know, the other related concept we're talking about here is cross-examination. And I think the connection to Mormonism here is very obvious. It's the fact that while the church leaders have been uh, doing these face-to-faces and trying, I think, to reach out and answer questions more, it's always a very carefully curated experience. They will very rarely, um, I don't even remember the last time, they've really been subjected to the type of questioning that cross-examination would be. Well, right. Uh, the one I remember is Elder Holland being questioned by Michael Sweeney for the BBC interview a number of years ago. And that's what happens when you're subjected to cross-examination. It was very polite, but he was able to test the things that Elder Holland was saying, and Elder Holland caved incredibly. He was caught off first base on a number of different instances because Michael Sweeney was there to simply ask a follow-up question. And I think that that was such a fiasco that it explains why it is that apostles don't do that anymore. Yeah, and it's such a good example, too, of what an effective cross-examination looks like, that that questioning. I think it's John Sweeney, if I remember right. Okay. Um, but the reason that's such an effective cross-examination is because he asked Elder Holland an open-ended question and allowed Elder Holland to tell his version of events. But he had the information already in his mind. So when he asked about temple penalties, he already knew in one sense, he already knew the answer, but he allowed Elder Holland enough rope to to tell a lie and to basically hang himself with that follow-up question. I think the other thing about um, cross-examination is, like we talked about, the idea of cross-examination is that 
by subjecting a witness to this type of questioning, the jury or the judge, if the judge is the fact finder in the, the case at issue, they get to hear some pushback. They get to really um, ferret out the truth. Um, I had one case. It was a um, it was actually an inattentive driving case, but it was serious because the the kid, he was a young kid. His story of the case was that he had sneezed while going through an intersection and he just didn't know what happened. The state's version, my version of the case was that he must have looked down, looked at his phone or something, because in the middle of the intersection, he ran over a biker um, and almost killed her. So that's why this case, even though it was a relatively low criminal charge, was actually very, very important because, um, you know, a finding of not guilty for him is going to have insurance implications and insurance implications for uh, the biker. Um, and I'll never forget the kid decided to take the stand. And mm-hmm. so their big theory of the case all day, as we were going through, I think it was a two day trial, but as we were going through the first day, they, they kept trying to make the point, the state's trying to, trying to criminalize a sneeze. The state's trying to criminalize a sneeze. I asked the kid on cross examination, if he could show the jury how he sneezed. And I will tell you, this was really bad lawyering actually, because I did not know the answer. Cause yeah, did no you ask him to try on the gloves that were found at the murder scene too. That's exactly right. I was, <laughs> I was super out in left field by asking this question because I did not know the answer. There was no witness that could have told me how he sneezed. And I will forever bless this kid for being honest. But he showed the jury exactly how he sneezed. And what he did was he took his, his T-shirt or whatever he was wearing, and he covered up his entire face, like including his eyes. Like how sometimes people will do that to to cover their nose to sneeze, but he covered up his entire eyes with his shirt also while sneezing. And so that kind of helped make, you know, my point of the case, which is if you have a sneeze like that coming, you don't just keep driving through an intersection if you can't see. Mm-hmm. But the Excellent. bottom line is by subjecting him to that cross-examination, the jury actually got to figure out what happened. I mean, that came from the kid's own I don't want to say the own mouth, but from his own testimony, that that is the way he sneezed. And they decided that that was not a reasonable way to act and drive on that day. Right. It sounds kind of inattentive to me. I think it's pretty much the definition of inattentive. Right. So So that's the whole part about uh, cross-examination and why it's so important to be able to ask follow-up questions in order to get to the bottom of things and have the best opportunity to find out the truth as much as we're able to. But we know that if a person just gets on the stand, testifies, gets off the stand, there's no cross-examination, then that is something that is not countenanced in the law. There is nobody, nobody. You tell me if there's any exceptions. There's exceptions to most things in the law. I don't think there's an exception to this. If a person gets on the stand to testify and have his story or her story put into the record in front of the jury, then they have to be subject to cross-examination. As far as I know, I can't, I can't think of a single instance where it wouldn't just violate. Yeah, I can't think of any exception to the rules that require cross. And the, there are obviously rules to um, not the confrontation clause, but there are specific rules about when the confrontation clause is invoked. But I think when it's invoked, it's pretty ironclad that 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 cross-examination is going to follow. Now, our next concept, which is related, now that we've kind of talked about what testimony 
is what we should look for in testimony is the idea of impeachment evidence. And the good news is, or bad news, however you want to look at it, is we have lots of rules that deal with impeachment evidence. Do you want to just generally describe what the concept of impeachment is and the effect you've seen it have on jurors and judges throughout your career? Yes, impeachment is a general term, and it applies to anything that may cast doubt upon a witness's testimony. Now, that could be bias that they might have. Perhaps they're related to the person on whose behalf they're testifying. Perhaps they're married to the person on behalf of whom they're testifying. Maybe they have a financial interest in the outcome of the case. So those are different things that go to bias. Or maybe they really hate this guy. And that could be an opposite kind of bias. The idea that a person who either really likes a person or really hates a person would possibly have a reason for testifying in a certain way, a way either against them if they hate them or testifying on their behalf more than is just strictly factual if they love them. So you can get in those kinds of relationships as part of impeachment. Sometimes I think that's maybe effective for juries, but you know, if you got a wife up there testifying on behalf of her husband because she saw A, B, and C, and the cross-examination is, well, you're married to him, aren't you? And the answer is, yeah, because I already testified to that. I'm his wife. We only have the witnesses that we have, right? If a, a wife is usually going to be more able to see something her husband's doing if it happens when she's around or if it happens in the home. As an attorney, I'm more like a director or a stage manager of any individual case. I don't get to choose the subject matter of the case. I don't get to choose my actors or the witnesses. All I get to do is try and arrange it and manage it in such a way to hopefully be maximally effective for my client. But the more interesting part, I think, of impeachment has to do when you actually go to the heart of what they're saying, as opposed to who they are in relation to somebody else in the case. And that's where it gets interesting, because then you can talk about if they've made other statements, perhaps, that are inconsistent with the way they testified. And then you can bring out those prior statements in order to impeach them. And the more contradictory the prior statements are to what it is they've testified to, the more effective that kind of cross-examination and impeachment can be. Yeah, I think just generally when we talk about impeachment, one of the ways I've used impeachment before is, um, like I said, I think last time we spoke, um, when I was prosecuting, I did a, a fair number of complicated driving under the influence cases that involved experts. Anytime you're working with an expert, that expert is going to be being paid to be there to give an opinion. And I have seen that level of impeachment. If the expert already didn't do a very good job during their testimony, I have seen that level of um, impeachment and, and hard cross-examination really affect that witness's credibility. That's been my experience. I had one um, defense expert in a driving under the influence case that had never even seen the like the breathalyzer instrument <laughs> at issue. And he was still testifying that they just don't work. And, and I don't mean like the specific instrument. I mean, literally had never seen a breathalyzer instrument like the one that was used in the case. He was a PhD chemist. And so he just had this opinion generally that um, any type of breath sample wasn't valid per his scientific opinion, which he's absolutely entitled to. 
but I thought it was a little silly. Um, and so I really, really hammered this guy in. I actually had several trials with him. And I think in like the second or third one, I really, really hammered him um, about some really sloppy work he had done in his reports. And we'll get to that when we talk about inconsistent statements. And I remember when I called one of the jurors after the fact, they had said um, in the jury room that the way the the defense expert was kind of like led by the nose by that questioning, they really gave his opinion zero weight. And it was that impeachment and it was that cross-examination that had that effect. So let's dig in and let's talk about the rules that apply to impeachment. Um, there's a number of them. I want to start with rule 607. This is just a tiny, tiny little snippet rule, but I think it's important. It is the rule that stands for the proposition that any party can attack a witness's credibility. So what that means or what that says to me is that when we go inside of a courtroom, what matters most, and I know there are going to be people who don't believe this, but what matters most when we go into a courtroom and we're having a trial is actually getting out the truth. If you call a witness and you think they're going to testify about something, and their testimony changes at the last minute. And that happens all the time for a various number of reasons. You may have to, as the party who called that witness, start attacking their credibility or start attacking their version of events. And the reason is because with the adversarial system, we're supposed to try and get at the truth through all these trial protections and procedures that we have. Do you have any thoughts on that rule? Well, just from the prosecutor's point of view, that usually comes up when you're doing a domestic violence case of some sort. You call the female who is more than nine times out of 10, the alleged victim, and the prosecutor calls the alleged victim up on the stand to testify as to what happened. And now all of a sudden her story has changed dramatically from what she originally told the police. Yeah, that's the way I've seen it applied most commonly also is those types of cases are really hard and it's really hard. Uh, I don't know if you ever had a case where you had to do that as a prosecutor, but I'll just say it's completely unpalatable to call someone up to the stand and then basically just make them look like a liar today to the jury. And what you're going to be doing is referring back to the statements they've made to officers like closer in time to the event. Right. And those are the prior inconsistent statements that can be used for impeachment purposes. Okay, you're saying this now, but you told the police this. Right. And you would be asking this witness all of that in front of the jury. It's not very fun. Um, Right. And frequently it's like they told the police he hit me and now they're testifying. I ran into a door. Exactly. So now let's talk about um, rule of evidence 608. This is, you know, we're going to get to the prior inconsistent statements in just a second. But I think this is an important point. So rule 608 allows for testimony of a witness's character for truthfulness or untruthfulness. And so what that means is that one witness can come in and testify generally about another witness's credibility. So if Bob and Sue are two of the witnesses and Bob is really chief to, you know, the prosecution's case, Sue, while she's testifying, can be asked a question about Bob's overall credibility. And one of the reasons I think that this relates is I want to talk about ad hominem because this is a term that gets thrown about all the time when we're dealing with apologetics and critics of the church. Um, And this rule allows for the testimony of someone's character. And so I want to just read, um, you know, a statement of what a valid ad hominem argument is. 
an ad hominem for those who aren't familiar is an attack against the person. So that's, that's what it means in Latin. Um, and there's this statement here, a valid ad hominem argument occurs in informal logic where the person making the argument relies on arguments from authority, such as testimony, expertise, or a selective presentation of information supporting the position they are advocating. In this case, counter arguments may be made that the target is dishonest, lacks the claimed expertise, or has a conflict of interest. And so in my mind, this ability inside of a courtroom to have general testimony about a witness's character for truthfulness or untruthfulness has a direct tie to what a valid ad hominem attack is and when it is not fallacious to talk about someone's personal character. And I think this, the reason I bring this up is this very clearly relates to Joseph Smith and his character. You know, we hear give brother Joseph a break, but in Mormon scripture today, it is still said that Joseph Smith did more than anyone for the salvation of mankind, except for Jesus himself. And Joseph himself is at least reportedly not even that humble. You know, he said at one time, or at least it's reported he said at one time, I have more to boast of than ever any man had. I am the only man that has ever been able to keep a whole church together since the days of Adam. Neither Paul, John, Peter, nor Jesus ever did. I boast that no man ever did works such as I. The followers of Jesus ran away from him, but the Latter-day Saints never ran away from me yet. So while I was looking for this quote, which comes right from the history of the church, um, and I'll come back to this uh, general apologetic over history of the church and fair Mormon in our next big point, but I want to note it here so I don't forget forget to connect these dots. But I want to disabuse people of this notion that we always need to give Brother Joseph a break. He claimed to be the most important person ever since Jesus that is an appeal to both expertise and authority. And so it is not an invalid use of ad hominem to question his integrity and his credibility. And the reason why is because both of these directly relate to his ultimate claims. And I think that's what separates a valid use of ad hominem from a fallacious use of ad hominem, which is if I were to attack RFM as a critic of the church for his you know, perceived lack of credibility, it doesn't make the church's truth claims any more true. But on the flip side, showing that Joseph Smith has a demonstrated character of untruthfulness does have a direct import on the church's truth claims. Right. And if I can add a couple of things to that, first off, this idea that a witness can testify as to the credibility of another person in trial, that is quite archaic and it has become so limited that I have almost never seen it happen. It's also very dangerous to do, but you have to have a witness who is aware of the other witnesses reputation for truthfulness or untruthfulness in a specific community. And that community has to be established as well. And how is this witness part of the community and aware of the reputation? And you want to either have it be for truthfulness or untruthfulness. So once a witness has established that they're aware of the community, that there is a reputation for truthfulness or untruthfulness, then the only thing that the lawyer gets to ask is, and what is that reputation for truthfulness or untruthfulness? The witness answers with one word, either truthful or untruthful. That's the end of the questioning. You can't go into that any further. The reason it's dangerous is because the other side now gets to ask questions of this witness. And let's just say someone were to say Joseph Smith was a truthful person, or we find out that there's a person who lived in Joseph Smith's area, a member of the church, 
aware of Joseph Smith's reputation in the church. And they say, yes, Joseph Smith was a truthful person. Well, now the cross-examination comes in and says, okay, you say Joseph Smith was truthful. Were you aware that Joseph Smith said this on one occasion, then he says this on another occasion? Are you aware that he was practicing polygamy at the same time he was denying he was practicing polygamy? And then you can go on and on and on, and you can get in through a witness such as that on cross-examination, all sorts of terribly prejudicial stuff that you could not get in otherwise, which is one of the reasons it's so dang dangerous to have a witness get up there and say something like that. Yeah. And you would hear before all of that happens, right? You would hear the dreaded words from the judge counsel. I think you've opened the door. Oh yeah. (laughs) And so I think, I think really the reason I wanted to talk about this, you're absolutely right that in the courtroom, I think this rule gets very little play. I think very often where you will see it get play is trying to rebut general allegations, not through the process you just laid out, but you're going to get an argument maybe from the state side that the defense, by raising certain points, has questioned a witness's credibility because what the state wants to do is have the judge say, yeah, counsel, you open the door to this and get into all those specifics that prove the person uh, was truthful. That's, that's I think, where you'll see that rule come up the most often. But but I think generally the way it connects is because we're talking here general legal principles, right? And one of the general legal principles I think we can pull from this rule is that it is not always invalid to engage in an ad hominem type analysis to ask, is this person, the person's character, is it credible? And I think that's why it was important to go through what a valid ad hominem a valid use of ad hominem is. And so one of the things I would ask as we have that idea in mind of what a valid ad hominem is, is I think we should ask, um, and I would think about this sometimes as I was a full TBM and we'd be going through Doctrine and Covenants, like why did so many people who were so close to Joseph Smith turn against him completely? Because like you, I think astutely observed last time as we were talking about David Whitmer, you often hear about David Whitmer but you never really hear the reason that David Whitmer left, right? You hear about him as the witness, one of the three witnesses to the Book of Mormon, and that he never denied his testimony, right? but never about why did he leave then? So backing up just a second, though, I did want to add one point to what you're saying, hopefully to clarify it, because I know that there are some people who are church apologists whose name I won't mention, Midnight Mormons, Cardinalis, but they become aware of the idea that there are situations in which ad hominem can be validly used. And then they think that opens the door for them to use ad hominem improperly. So here's the thing. We're having a discussion, you and I. We have different opinions. I'm going off the evidence that I think supports my opinion. You're going off the evidence that you think supports your opinion. And we're having a discussion. Neither of us are witnesses. We're just having an argument, a debate, a discussion. It is completely improper then for me to question you and say, well, you know, when you were a kid, you shoplifted a candy bar at a store or something worse. You're a mass murderer. Let's take it to the extreme. You are a serial killer. Well, that sounds pretty inflammatory. And it is. And I don't encourage people to kill other people. But it has absolutely nothing to do with the discussion that we're having. 
Because who you are doesn't affect the evidence and it doesn't affect whether your argument is valid and cogent. Exactly. And I think that is the difference is ad hominem is not fallacious when it does directly relate to the evidence. So let's say that you and I were having a discussion about Mormonism's truth claims and you make an assertion based on your personal fact finding. You say, I had this conversation with elder whatever, and they told me X, Y, and Z. Well, if I know or I can show that you have demonstrated in the past dishonesty, that does then directly relate to whether someone should accept or not accept that piece of evidence. And I think that's why evaluating Joseph Smith's credibility is a completely valid analysis to do and not a fallacious ad hominem. I agree. And in that example that you gave, if I say that I talked to elder so-and-so, a general authority, and he said A, B, and C, what I have done then is I have put my credibility at issue. Am I a reliable narrator of what it is that elder so-and-so told me? And it also puts elder so-and-so's credibility at issue. Yes. And I think that that is completely different from sharing your personal perspective and conclusions and giving other people the evidence that doesn't relate to your credibility that they can go verify themselves. I think that's the difference is I think sometimes Mormon apologists don't understand that if a critic has a conclusion that's different than them, but gives everyone else the ability to go check their work, their credibility really does not matter right. to, to the argument. Right. It's only if they position themselves as a witness. Exactly. And let me just say something else here, because I think it's going to play right into what it is you're talking about. And I apologize if we're talking too much inside baseball, but hearsay is a rule that is riddled with exceptions, was the expression I learned in my evidence class back at the University of Texas at Austin. Now, if hearsay is admitted under one of those exceptions, and a witness gets to testify that another person told me something, and that other person never testifies, the other person who's not testifying can still be impeached just as if that person had testified. So if a person now in a discussion about the church quotes Joseph Smith as having said that he experienced something, in other words, he's a witness to something, that puts Joseph Smith's credibility at issue just the same as if Joseph Smith himself had testified in the proceeding, and I am permitted to impeach Joseph Smith using any means that I would be able to use if he in fact testified. That's exactly, that is such a great connection. So let's, let's talk about, I guess, three examples that come to my mind. So the first is Oliver Cowdery. So we know that because we're asking this question, right? Why did so many people who were so close to Joseph Smith and so close to the origins of Mormonism, why did they end up turning against him so completely? And so Oliver is the first one that comes to my mind. And we know that the reason he left the church or actually was excommunicated from the church is that he knew about Joseph Smith's involvement with Fanny Auger, who was actually my great, 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 great grandmother. Really? And you might yes, be a descendant of Joseph Smith. I don't think I am. <laughs> and um, really the reason that Oliver ended up getting excommunicated from the church is because he just refused to knuckle under when it came to Joseph's wanting to cover it up. I think in the letter to his brother, he called it a dirty, nasty, filthy scrape. Is that right? Yeah, or a fair. I know it was uh, marked out in the original manuscript. Right. 
And so we know that that's one of the reasons he did. So what does that tell us about what he thought of Joseph's character, right? And we talked about David Whitmer last time when we talked about um, his book and address to all believers in Christ. But I want to come back to this. So this is a statement that is, this is a quote from an address to all believers in Christ from David Whitmer. So I'm going to read here. Um, they have departed in a great measure from the faith of the church of Christ. And sorry, let me introduce this quote. He is writing about the different breakoffs from Mormonism late, later in his life. And so that's what he's talking about. That is the they in this sentence. They have departed in a great measure from the faith of the church of Christ as it was first established by heeding revelations given through Joseph Smith, who, after being called by God to translate his sacred word, the Book of Mormon drifted into many errors and gave many revelations to introduce doctrines, ordinances, and offices in the church, which are in conflict with Christ's teachings. They also changed the name of the church, and they've changed it again. Can Their I mention something there? I'm sorry, this is a long yeah, quote, but I want to mention the fact that when he says they departed from the faith of the Church of Christ, Church of Christ is in all caps, because that was the original name of the church right. that Joseph Smith organized in 1830. And then in 1833, I think it was, it might have been 34, the name of the church was changed to the Church of the Latter-day Saints. And it's always funny when members of the church, like I used to get up in arms when people were reporting about the church or doing news stories, and they would call it the Church of the Latter-day Saints. And I'd go, that's not the name. It's the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You've left Jesus Christ out. You've left out the most important part. And then I found out that the church itself did that left Jesus Christ out for about five years, I'd say, from 1833 or four to 1838. And in fact, on the Kirtland Temple, which was dedicated in 1836, the name on the Kirtland Temple that is still on there is the Church of the Latter-day Saints. So this is one of the things that David Whitmer is inveighing against, is changing the name from the Church of Christ, the original name, which he liked, to the Church of the Latter-day Saints. Because it wasn't until 1838 that by revelation now, now God wants to get involved in the name of the church eight years after it's been organized. And he's going to say it's the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So we'll put everything together in this very long and somewhat awkward sounding name of a church. But that's why David Whitmer didn't like the fact that they changed the name of the church because they left out Jesus Christ. And I think that David Whitmer was gone by 1838 when they changed it to put Jesus Christ back into the name of the church. Right. Let me ask a follow-up question about that, because I, I think that's a great thing to build out. But let me ask a, this follow-up question. So when President Nelson gave his address about the you know the correct usage of the name of the church, he cited very specifically the Savior's direction, I think, in 3 Nephi about what the name of the church should be called. 3 Nephi so, 27, yeah. Right. So when when, when was that direction available to members of the church pre-1838? <laughs> that would be my question. <laughs> right. It's a strange thing because here you've got Jesus making a big deal out of the name of the church. If it be named after a man, then it's the church of the man. But how can it be my church unless it's named after me? Right. So that's in the Book of Mormon, comes off the press 1830 in March. It's there for the foundation of the church and the organization of the church in April of 1830. And then it's the Church of Jesus Christ or the Church of Christ for a few years. And then they take Jesus Christ out of it and make it the Church of the Latter-day Saints. Right. And I think it's important. This is and this is something that I just look for all the time. This is another one of those double binds, right, where President Nelson is using as justification scripture that earlier prophets completely ignored when naming the 
naming the church to say, no, we definitely have to be calling the church this one specific name. Does that make sense? Does that connect for you? Do you see the same double bind I do? Yes. If he's quoting the Book of Mormon to say the church needs to be named after Jesus Christ, then it raises the question, well, then why for five years after the Book of Mormon came forth, was the church named after something other than Jesus Christ? Particularly in the way that he expressed it, right? It wasn't soft language he gave. He said that not using the name now is a major victory for Satan. So I guess we're just okay with assuming that Christ was okay with that major victory for Satan during that entire period, right? Right. So let's go back to our David Whitmer quote. I think that was a good uh, digression. Um, so he he continues, he says, Their departure from the faith is also according to prophecy. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and the doctrine of devils. And that comes from First Timothy. And then he says, on account of God giving to Joseph Smith the gift to translate the plates on which was engraven the Nephite scripture, the people of the church put too much trust in him, in the man, and believed his words as if they were from God's own mouth. Where would they have gotten such an idea uh, that uh, they could trust in his words as if they came from God's own mouth, RFM? I don't know. Uh, section one versus, what is it, 37 and 38? Correct. Yeah. I, you know, my brother has um, this year been processing his own faith journey, faith crisis, and has walked away from Mormonism. And he's been processing through um, writing little poems and sayings. And this just reminds me, the favorite one he sent me is, it uses that verse. It says, you know, whether by my voice or the voice of my servants, it is the same, said the servant. (laughs) That's what my brother has built out. (laughs) Right. And I say, we know that prophets will never lead the church astray. And how do we know that? Because the prophet said so. Right. (laughs) So we'll continue. Uh, David Wimmer says, they have trusted in the arm of flesh, citing to Jeremiah. And then he says, thus saith the Lord, cursed be the man that trusted in man and maketh flesh his arm and whose heart departeth from the Lord. They looked to Joseph Smith as lawgiver. We look to Christ alone and believe only in the religion of Jesus Christ and not in the religion of any man. So in the interest of keeping the context, because last time we talked about the rule of completeness, I want to be open about the fact that David Whitmer, and you can see it here, he still believed in the Book of Mormon. He still believed in the legitimacy, at least in some part of Joseph Smith's calling. And he still believed that Joseph Smith had correctly translated it. In fact, later on in the next chapter of this book, he states that Joseph Smith was a stumbling block and a fallen prophet that did bring forth the fullness of the gospel in the Book of Mormon. And so I think as we're talking about why did these people leave, what does that say about Joseph Smith's character? You can see that I think one of the biggest issues for David Whitmer is this entire idea that the people, the church themselves, had put too much trust in Joseph Smith. And I really like that he cites to that scriptural language, trusting in the arm of the flesh, because that's, that has actually been a big question I've asked of members that I've talked to as the church has really doubled down on um, speaking out against activism towards the church in brother Corbett's recent talk um, is, you know, if you can't correct the leaders, but the leaders do make mistakes how are we not just putting our trust in the arm of the flesh? And no one's really been able to answer that question for me. Right. And I will state the obvious here that obviously if uh, David Whitmer, he has this position 
that Joseph Smith became a fallen prophet with the things that he was teaching after the Book of Mormon came forth, which David Whitmer continues to support. The reason he feels that way is because Joseph Smith taught things with which David Whitmer disagreed. If Joseph Smith had continued to teach things that David Whitmer agreed with, then he would not have come to the conclusion that he was a fallen prophet. So I'm just stating the obvious there. Sometimes it helps me to state the obvious for clarity. The other thing is that even if we didn't know anything about the contents of the Book of Mormon, which is pretty much straight up Methodism of the time and place, as far as the theology goes, and even if we didn't know anything about the different teachings that Joseph Smith came up with after the Book of Mormon, if all we had was this booklet by David Whitmer, we would know that there is a striking difference between what's in the Book of Mormon versus what Joseph Smith came up with later. And it was sufficiently striking as to cause one of the three witnesses to the Book of Mormon to leave the church over it. That is such a good point. We had missionaries stop by, I don't know, probably four or five months ago, and they wanted to share a message with us. And I, you know, I was a missionary in the States and I know how hard it can be. So I let them in and I was as nice to them as I could be. And I don't mean that in the Elder Ballard transparent as I could be with. I mean, I. <laughs> You mean you I mean, were actually I, nice? I actually was as nice to them as I could be. That's when Elder you know, Ballard says we're as transparent as we know how to be. What he means is we're not transparent. <laughs> That's right. And so, you know, they shared a scripture with me from the Book of Mormon, and they asked how I felt about the Book of Mormon. And one of the things I told them is exactly what you're just saying here is the church today, if you were to take just the Book of Mormon and generate a church, like use an AI to generate a church with the theology that comes out of the Book of Mormon, it would look nothing like today's LDS church. That's that's just a fact. Everything that's uniquely that people think of when they think of Mormonism does not come from the Book of Mormon. Uh, when we're talking about temples, the sealing power, the word of wisdom, the, um, I'm trying to think of other examples. Polygamy. Polygamy, the Book of Mormon specifically condemns it. Yes, and that's uh, one of the even... things is that, I'm sorry, I'm going to talk over you. Please keep your thought, is that we're in a position now in the church today where not only are so many of the teachings not rooted in the Book of Mormon, there's a cluster of them that are actually contradictory to what's in the Book of Mormon. Right, and the the last one I had in my mind, that's a huge one, like you just said, that's completely contradicted, is this idea the church has this very strict uh, hierarchical structure. And that idea is completely anathema to the Book of Mormon, as is this idea that, you know, there's some magic in laying on the hands of priesthood ordination. We have, in fact, in, I think it's Messiah 18, where Alma baptizes after, you know, leaving King Noah, after being um, converted by Benedict's words, he goes and and baptizes a man, I can't remember his name, I think, do you remember it off the top of your head in Messiah 18? Helam. Yeah, that's right. He goes and baptizes Helam, and it always appeared to me as a believer, like, baptizes himself at the same time. Yes. And so, you know, the strict, like, you have to receive the laying out of hands of priesthood ordination before you're doing any type of ordinances. I guess what I'm saying is the Book of Mormon, like you said, is more in line with the idea of the priesthood of all believers than it is with the LDS Church's very hierarchical priesthood structure. Right. There's no indication in the Book of Mormon of any priesthood that has to be received by the laying on of hands in order to perform ordinances. And frequently, when we as modern Mormons then go to the Book of Mormon and try and impose modern Mormonism on the Book of Mormon, it raises questions. And this is one of the big questions. This is a chestnut 
in the Book of Mormon that will frequently be raised when you get to this part of the Book of Mormon, which is where did Alma get his authority to baptize? Because there's no record of it. So stories will be created as glosses on the text in order to explain this otherwise inexplicable thing that Alma's out there baptizing with no account of his getting the priesthood. He was a priest of King Noah. I mean, that's wickedness. So where does he get the priesthood? The more direct answer is that priesthood, as modern Mormons conceive of it, was not a concern to the author of the Book of Mormon. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. So let's conclude with, at least on this piece, with the the character of truthfulness or untruthfulness. And I think the the two last examples I want to give are really important to me. It's William and Jane Law and and William's brother, who helped create the Nauvoo Expositor. So, and I know that John Larson back in the Mormon Expression days had done a podcast about, actually, it's, I think it's a two-part podcast about the Expositor, but I would still challenge any member to find something that's actually defamatory or incorrect because, you know, truth is always a defense when we're talking about defamation in the Nauvoo Expositor. Right. And, that was one of the things that struck me is that there was a time when a person, if you could read the Nauvoo Expositor, which is basically a broadsheet, and the allegations in there, which are by far the minority of the printed text about polygamy and Joseph Smith's practicing of it, there might have been a time when a member might say, well, that's not true. But with the advent of the church-sanctioned and sponsored and approved gospel topic essay about Joseph Smith and polygamy, there's nothing in the Nauvoo Expositor that is contradicted by that essay. That's right. And, and I think there, the only place I can see that a believing member or myself as a believing member would really quibble is with some of the word, the, the conclusion words used. So for example, they use the word abomination and whoredom. But at the end of the day, the behavior that they were accusing Joseph Smith of has now been vindicated by the church. Right. And as far as abomination goes, I would just say that that's what the Book of Mormon said to describe plural marriage. They called it an abomination. That's right. That's right. So it doesn't make it that it's true. It's an abomination because it is a conclusion. But the force of it to me is that it's the same conclusion that the Book of Mormon says about marrying more than one woman. And so if Joseph Smith brings forth the Book of Mormon, founds the church on it, and it becomes the keystone of our religion. And the Book of Mormon says that marrying more than one woman is an abomination, then I think that that's fair to use as an argument later on when you find out that Joseph Smith is actually contradicting what the Book of Mormon said in practicing plural marriage and say, well, the Book of Mormon calls this an abomination. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's a fair characterization. Um, I'm not going to read the big quote I pulled from the expositor, but I would encourage people to actually go read it, especially people who are nuanced members or have, who haven't read it before. Like, go read it and actually determine what parts of it bother you. Because Here's what I, here's what I want to say, Colby. Yeah. We've got a 12-page outline for part two. We're just up to page four. We're over an hour into this. So why don't you go ahead and read this? Because I think it's important what William Law and Jane, his wife, said. Okay, so I'll quote here from the expositor. They say, we are earnestly seeking to explode the vicious principles of Joseph Smith and those who practice the same abominations and whoredoms, which we verily know are not accordant and consonant with the principles of Jesus Christ and the apostles. And for that purpose and with that end in view, 
with an eye single to the glory of God, we have dared to gird on the armor. And with God at our head, we most solemnly and sincerely declare that the sword of truth shall not depart from the thigh nor the buckler from the arm until we can enjoy those glorious privileges which nature's God and our country's laws have guaranteed us. Freedom of speech, the liberty of the press, and the right to worship God as seemeth us good. We are aware, however, that we are hazarding every earthly blessing, particularly property, and probably life itself, in striking this blow at tyranny and oppression. Yet, notwithstanding, we most solemnly declare that no man or set of men combined shall with impunity violate obligations as sacred as many which have been violated, unless reason, justice, and virtue have become ashamed and sought the haunts of the grave, though our lives may be the forfeiture. Many of us have sought a reformation in this church without a public exposition of the enormities of crimes practiced by its leaders, thinking that if they would hearken to counsel and show fruit meat for repentance, it would be as acceptable with God as though they were exposed to public gaze. For the private path, the secret acts of men, if noble, far the noblest of their lives. But our petitions were treated with contempt, and in many cases the petitioner spurned from their presence, and particularly by Joseph, who would state that if he had sinned and was guilty of the charges we would charge him with, he would not make acknowledgement, but would rather be damned, for it would detract from his dignity and would consequently ruin and prove the overthrow of the church. And I think that last quote, it's just interesting to me when you go back to these historical documents and you can see how some of the debates that we hear today or some of the comments we hear today they echo back in the past. And this idea that the laws are stating that Joseph stated that if you accuse me with something, even if it's true, that it will detract from my dig- dignity and consequently ruin and prove the overthrow of the church. That sounds exactly to me like Dallin H. Oaks's often repeated statement that it is wrong to criticize the leaders of the church, even if the criticism is true. That is a good point because the rationale for that is that it doesn't make any difference whether the criticism is true. The leader of the church is engaged in the work of the Lord, and to have public criticism of that leader would hinder his ability to continue his work for the Lord. That's exactly right. And President Eyring went even further with this idea. And I think we talked about this quote last time, but he's taught that it's a sin to even think of our leaders as having human weaknesses, that it impugns their ability to do the Lord's work. Yeah, that is pretty extreme. And it's so funny coming from President Eyring. President Eyring always reminds me of Richard Deacon from the Dick Van Dyke show. But he has this demeanor that's very different. It's so gentle, so emotional, if I can put it that way. He doesn't come across as hammering the podium or laying down the law like Elder Oaksmite or Elder Holland. And yet his words are just as extreme in some cases as anything that a more hardline presenting apostle might say. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, particularly on this issue, which is odd, because he's actually given multiple talks that have very strongly suggested, you know, there was one that in the middle of my faith crisis, I read over and over and over again. I think it's called The Lord Leads His Church, and it's I think it's from 2017. But he specifically says that you need to have faith that Christ leads this church and he makes no mistakes in the callings of his leaders, which you can imagine having been faced with a bishop that was charged with child molestation. As you were. uh, As I was, (laughs) that I was, um, I I just couldn't stomach that. I couldn't, 
I couldn't put that mistake on God or ascribe it to inscrutable mysteries like my stake president wanted to. Um, for me, the clear answer is getting revelation is difficult and the stake president messed it up. <laughs> that- You're right. And we focus so much on Elder Oaks because that's bad enough to say that you can't criticize a leader of the church. From my point of view, that's a bad thing that you can't even voice a criticism of a leader of the church. But if you go to President Eyring, he out Oaks Oaks and says, not only can you not even talk about it, you can't even think it or it's sin. That's right. Yeah. And he says it's something we need to repent of. It is. I like the way you put that, that he out Oaks Oaks. So Eyring looked at Oaks's statement and said, hold my root beer. Well, I borrowed it from Shakespeare, of course. That's from Hamlet, where he's talking about something horrible and he says, it out Herod's Herod. That's right. I forgot of that line. So I think one of the things, one of the last things I just wanted to connect about on the laws is that um, William Law towards, so, so there's this narrative in the church that these early people who left, and this is true of some of them, that they left and they did it because they had personal problems with Joseph. And they hated Joseph and they hated the saints and they just wanted every, they wanted everything to crumble. They were just filled with hate and they were awful people. That is not true of William and Jane Law. They published the expositor and they left and they had nothing to do with Mormonism for a very, very long time. In fact, it wasn't until after Jane was dead and William's brother, who I can't remember his name, but he was, so William went on to be a successful um, medical doctor. He had a, a medical practice and he had, you know, for 40 years had nothing to do with Mormonism. And then near the end of his life, he was asked to do an interview and he was asked to answer several letters and he did. And I've been reading those and been very just impressed with his, you know, if, if he was the way that the church has painted critics in the past, which is that they just hated everything about the church and they wanted to find fault with everybody. William Law was doing a really awful job at doing that because he shows, I think, a lot of integrity in the way he talks about some of the early figures in Mormonism. So, for example, in one of the letters, one of those closing letters that were, I think they were ended up being published in the Salt Lake Tribune, but he he says, you know, of Sidney Rigdon, that Sidney Rigdon was very close. I could never fail fairly understand him. While I knew him, he appeared like a disappointed man, very retired in his ways. He professed to be a great biblical historian. He was an eloquent preacher. I can hardly think he intended to be a bad man. He would be a leader if he could. Now, at the same time, in that same letter, Law maligns John C. Bennett. And what I'm saying is, if all William Law wanted to do was make Joseph Smith look bad, Bennett had already published his expose about Joseph. And Law says, I didn't even read it. I always thought that he was a scoundrel through and through. You know, vindicating Bennett and maligning Sidney Rigdon in some ways would have lined up with this supposedly critical bias. I think that's the point I'm making is that particularly because here we're talking about evaluating testimony. We're talking about evaluating someone's credibility as an overall proposition. And when I look at demonstrated different statements, especially over 40, 50 years from William Law, he, to me, seems like a man of character and a very credible person that seems to just be telling the truth to say John C. Bennett was a um, was a scoundrel, even when vindicating John C. Bennett would support his supposedly critical bias. What do you think of that? What you're doing here is you're evaluating the credibility of a person 
William Law is a witness. You're not having a discussion with William Law. He is presenting himself as a witness to what was going on in the innermost councils of the church when he was in the first presidency, I believe, with Joseph Smith. So he certainly had the opportunity to observe and to see these things. He's not someone who was never a member of the church or who was on the outside saying the stuff is going on. He's got the opportunity and he's presenting himself as a witness. And therefore it's totally valid and actually important when he's saying something this controversial, at least from a TVM point of view, to evaluate the reliability of his testimony. And the only way you can do that is by comparing it with other things that may have been going on that you might know from other sources, but also looking at his life as a whole and the other things that he might have testified about. Now, John C. Bennett was another guy who was in the first presidency. The story of the church, the story of Joseph Smith is that he started practicing plural marriage in a way that was unauthorized. And he was going out willy nilly using it to satisfy his own lustful desires. Well, if William Law is attacking Joseph Smith for practicing polygamy, then it would make sense for him. And if that's his only reason for doing it, other than it being true, then it would make sense for him to piggyback on John C. Bennett and bolster John C. Bennett's credibility. Instead, he attacks John C. Bennett's credibility, which is not something you would expect to see from a witness who is simply trying to malign Joseph Smith in disregard of the facts. The fact that he maligns another witness who's saying similar things to what he's saying suggests that William Law is actually being truthful. Exactly. That's exactly my point, is that if he really was just making these statements, you know, testifying because of his bias, he's doing an awful bad job of it because he could have just linked up with John C. Bennett and vindicated some of the things John C. Bennett said, some of which I think are accurate, some of which I think he was just out to lunch. I think that's the interesting thing about John C. Bennett. That's where we get, uh, you know, the story really of Martha Brotherton. Uh, and I think that's accurate because I think it has been vindicated since uh, by other accounts that weren't known at that time. So I think one of the things that's very important for us to ask ourselves to really tie a bow on this idea of credibility and character for truthfulness is, there were so many times when I would be reading through the Doctrine and Covenants as a believing member, and I would, in the back of my mind, have questions about why people left, why so many people left, why apostles left, because we don't see that today. And I would just invite people to, and I'm not saying they need to reach the conclusions that I have or that you have, but they need to ask the questions and go evaluate the credibility of these people because they do directly relate to the truth claims. And I want to vindicate, I guess, one thing that I hear all the time from um, believing members, which is, I, I think there's a difference between trying to evaluate someone's credibility because it relates to the claims they've made and fault finding. Because so often we hear that we shouldn't like, you know, fault find, whether it's with past church leaders, past historical leaders, whatever it is. I can absolutely appreciate that, that there is some truth to the idea that no matter how hard you look at someone's life, you can find things to criticize them for if you wanted to. Um, and that I, I don't want to live my life that way. But I think that's why we started this whole discussion with the idea of what is a valid ad hominem attack and what is a fallacious ad hominem attack? Because these things very, very directly relate to truth claims that Joseph Smith has made and to his credibility. And so I guess my invitation, my exhortation would be just to go 
And if you were like me as a believing member and you had these lingering questions in the back of your head, like, hey, what was it with, you know, the Kirtland anti, anti-banking safety society? Why don't I know more about this? Go learn more about them. And you might not come to the same conclusion I did. And that's great. But the fact is, we need to think about these things and we need to wrestle with these things. Yes. And what I generally hear when I hear people like Elder Oaks talk about that we should not be saying negative things about past church leaders because it's wrong to speak ill of the dead and they're not around to defend themselves. What I think is, well, yeah, sure, as a general principle, I get that. But would you apply the same thing to Adolf Hitler? Would you say that because he's dead, we can't say anything negative about him or question things he said or did? Would you say the same thing about Pol Pot or any of host of other people in history? No, his point is exclusively for Joseph Smith and prior church leaders, and he wants to use this general principle as a complete shield from anybody saying anything negative or questioning anything that they did. And I think that's wrong, and that's unreasonable for him to make that argument. I agree with you. And I think it really builds out this difference between being a critic, which just means thinking critically about things, And being a negative person. I do think there is a difference between those being like a negative or a fault finding person. I think there's a difference between those, right? I don't go looking into Joseph Smith and the church's early history just because I want to make Joseph Smith look bad. If there are things and stories and there are, and they they're in no man knows my history that make him look like a good person at sometimes all I care about is following the evidence. And if the evidence makes someone look bad, that's not my fault. That's the evidence's fault. That's their behavior's fault. Or it could be right? the person's fault. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So as we're on this this thread about impeachment, right? So now we turn to Rule 609, which is, and we're going to cover this one quickly, but this is impeachment by evidence of a past criminal conviction. Now, I'm not going to dig into all the detailed rules, but here's the bottom line, is if you have a past criminal conviction that is fairly recent and it directly relates to, say it's a charge for fraud or for some type of misrepresentation, then it is probably going to come into evidence if you decide to be a witness. And the reason is there's this presumption basically in the law, in this rule, that people who have been convicted, particularly of crimes that involve some level of dishonesty, that those people are less trustworthy than people who haven't had those types of convictions. So as we talk about convictions, the obvious one that comes to my mind is Joseph Smith's 1826 glass looking trial in South Bainbridge. Now jump in for a second. Of course. Okay. So the idea here is that a prior conviction can come in in order to impeach a witness, but only under very limited circumstances. First off, it has to be a conviction. And second off, it has to be for what is called a crime of dishonesty. And there are only certain crimes of dishonesty. There's theft is an obvious one. There's burglary, if the underlying crime is one of theft. There could be forgery, which is its own kind of fraud, or something like that. So writing a bad check or issuing a forgery, which is a low-level felony, can come in to impeach a witness, whereas a prior murder conviction would not, because murder has nothing to do with whether you're an honest person. (laughs) I know it sounds funny, but... This is the way the law looks at things, and it actually makes sense. A prior conviction for murder has nothing to do with whether the person's honest. A prior conviction for 
forging a check does go to their honesty. And the idea, go ahead. I was going to say, and to stitch these rules together, right? So we talked earlier about 404B. If I'm charged with murder in a similar way to the murder I had pled to five years ago, that is going to come in under that rule, not this rule. So this rule is very specifically about impeachment and about credibility. So that's the way these things all overlay on top of each other. And it's actually, there's actually a rhyme and a reason to it, right? It's because does it relate to what the person is testifying about or does it relate to the underlying case? Right. And so the judge then issues an instruction to the jury. Here's what happens. It's also similar to this idea about truthfulness in the community testimony or untruthfulness in the community testimony, which is that if there's a conviction for theft and the person is testifying, then on cross-examination, you can say, isn't it true that in such and such a year, you were convicted of theft in the second degree? And they say, yes. And if they say no, then obviously you're going to impeach them with their criminal history. But they say, yes, that's the end of the inquiry. You can't go into any other details. It's simply the conviction itself. And then the judge will turn to the jury at the request of the attorney. And maybe even without the request of the attorney, the judge will turn to the jury and say, I am instructing you that this conviction for theft can only be used by you in assessing the credibility of this witness and for no other reason. And that's probably one of the reasons, because of that limited nature of the way this rule is used, it's probably one of the reasons that you'll often see people, particularly prosecutors, right, try and make these past convictions or past bad acts because it does not have to be a conviction to come in under 404B. It's one of the reasons that you'll see prosecutors try and fit things into the 404B box is because they're not limited to just asking, don't you have this past conviction? They can get, they have a little bit more leeway to make the connection with the jury that these things are actually connected. And so they'll get to get into more specifics. And And I will say once again, that that's why the general rule of 404 is that prior bad acts do not come in right? because the jury is supposed to be deciding the issue based upon the evidence that's presented as to whether the person actually did what it is that they are accused of doing based upon the evidence that they did or didn't do what it is they're accused of doing and not upon something bad they did in the past. Exactly. And so how this obviously is going to connect to Joseph Smith, as I said, is the 1826 class looking trial. Now, We've kind of just had this interesting kind of inside baseball discussion about the relationship between 609 and 404. And I think it's important that this rule, we could have easily just included it in 404 because I think it actually, the the discussion we're going to have about it actually more squarely fits in 404. Because what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the 1826 class looking trial. And I want to just sidestep this whole question of whether or not Joseph Smith was convicted because there's conflicting evidence in the record. And I think people can reasonably reach either conclusion, if I'm going to be honest. I think, though, that what's much more interesting, much more damning for Joseph Smith's credibility is the testimony that was actually offered in Joseph Smith's defense at this trial. And this is based on two different records. So in case anyone feels like they don't want to just believe one record, this is taken from um, W.D. Purple's 1877 account and also from the notes from Justice Neely. His, I think his niece, if I remember right, inherited his personal papers, and that's where these notes uh, come from. And those notes have since been vindicated. Was it by Metcalf? Who found the bill? That was Walters, right? Was yes, Walters. Wesley Walters. So the the important thing about Justice Neely's notes is for a long time, Mormon apologists said, 
oh no, that's just, just bonk made up to criticize the church. And it had a itemized statement of costs that then was later vindicated in the county records, uh, court records, if I remember correctly. Do I have that story basically right? Yes, we did a Mormonism Live on this not too long ago. And this 1877 account from a fellow with the last name of Purple talks about what happened in the trial. Now, obviously, this is very late. It's from 1877. So that's uh, what? Over 50 years. It's 51 years after the fact. So obviously, this was easy to lampoon and to disregard and discount because of its late nature. But then I think it was in the early 1970s that Wesley Walters went out to Bainbridge and in the courthouse actually found the judge's notes about the trial itself, which corroborated Purple's 1877 account. And so now this account from 1877 assumes much greater significance because it looks a lot more authentic because it matches the original document in the courthouse. Not in every detail, but there's sufficient corroboration for us to think, yeah, this looks like it is by and large probably accurate. Yes, having read the two different accounts myself, and I guess it's important for people who care about this, is that W.D. Purple is a critic of the church, right? He he is very much making the case that Mormonism is an abomination. Um, and so, you know, take that what you will. I think it's important to say, though, that having read both of the accounts, they're not completely consistent, but they very much seem like they are based on a underlying single story. They, they just seem like different perspectives on the same story. So- right. And if I can just say this, if he were convicted in 1826 of glass looking, and if that were considered to be a crime of dishonesty, and Joseph Smith took the stand, all we could say was, isn't it true that in 1826, you were convicted of glass looking? And he would say, yes, and that would be it. That's all the questions allowed. But when you get into the testimony of what actually happened at the trial, and you see how similar what happened at the trial is to what Joseph Smith said he did with relation to finding the plates for the Book of Mormon and translating the plates for the Book of Mormon, then that's where all of these details that would not have been allowed in under Rule 609 can and should come in under Rule 404B. Exactly right. So let's focus on those details. So this is testimony, or this is testimony from Josiah Stoll, who was friendly to the church and um, from Purple's account. So he says, quote, he swore that being stole, he swore that the prisoner, that being Joseph Smith, possessed all the power he claimed and declared that he could see things 50 feet below the surface of the earth, as plain as the witness could see what was on the justice's table and described very many circumstances to conform, confirm his words. Okay. If you'll hang on just a second there, that's not the end of the Purple's notes from his account, but that alone right there. Josiah Stoll is a friendly witness to Joseph Smith, which would indicate we can put more reliance in what he says. If he says something about Joseph Smith, even if he thinks it's a positive thing about Joseph Smith, and we look at it and think, wow, that's really questionable. What we can conclude is that if a friendly witness to Joseph Smith says that Joseph Smith claimed he could see things more than 50 feet below the surface of the earth, or at least up to 50 feet below the surface of the earth, Right. Then the odds are that Joseph Smith actually said that. Right. And it's important to note that one of the other witnesses at the trial, I don't have quotes from him, but Joseph Sr. was one of the other witnesses at this trial. And the the reason that Stowell's testimony that we've just read or the notes from the testimony is important is because the New York statute at issue made it a crime for people to pretend to have these types of gifts. And so that's the reason 
that it seems like Joseph Smith's defense from testimony from Stoll, from Joseph Sr., and then from a Jonathan Thompson, who we'll talk about his testimony in just a moment. Really, Joseph Smith's, it seems like Joseph Smith's theory of the case was, I am not guilty of this criminal, of violating this criminal statute because I don't pretend to have this gift. I actually have this gift. Right. All these other money diggers who are around, they may be pretending, but not me. I actually have this gift. And I've got Josiah Stoll, who was my employer, who hired me to find the silver mine back in 1825, which is the subject of the 1826 trial. Josiah Stoll, who believes in Joseph Smith, which is why he hired him in the first place to find this mine, which they never found, is testifying on his behalf that he actually did have these powers. And so far, all we have is his saying that Joseph Smith said he could see things up to 50 feet below the surface of the earth as plainly as Josiah Stoll could see what was on the justice's table. But then he goes on to actually give evidence about seeing or witnessing Joseph Smith do amazing and uncanny things that show he really did have this power. Yeah. So uh, Purple's notes continue. It says Joseph Justice Neely soberly looked at the witness and in a solemn, dignified voice said, Deacon Stoll, do you, I understand you as swearing before God under the solemn oath you have taken that you believe the prisoner can see by aid of the stone 50 feet below the surface of the earth as plainly as you can see what is on my table. Do I believe it, said Deacon Stoll? Do I believe it? No, it is not a matter of belief. I positively know it to be true. And like, I said, <laughs> <laughs> and, and like I said, this account, so the, the Justice Neely's court note version and Purple's version have slight disagreements. They, they're just different, but they're very, very similar. It's important to say that these align with Justice Neely's court notes, um, that Stoll essentially believed in Joseph Smith's abilities, but importantly, that nothing was ever found. And we can see this as we continue on from Purple's account of the testimony of Jonathan, Jonathan Thompson, who was one of the diggers involved in this project for Stoll. Right. So, and so even the question actually that was asked by the judge, do you believe this, is objectionable. Of course, things are different back then. I know it's not, they don't have the rules of evidence that we have today that we take to court with us in the bound volumes, but that's objectionable. And why I said objection, your honor, is because when Deacon stole, by the way, that's Josiah stole. Do you know why he's being called Deacon there? Yeah, because that's his priesthood office. (laughs) Well, was it, you mean in another church? No, I, I thought he was a Mormon deacon, but maybe I'm incorrect about that. Well, that would be an anachronism because it's 1826. Oh, that's, that's correct. You're right. But I just, but regardless of that mystery, we'll leave it to the side and just say whenever we're reading Deacon Stoll, that's talking about Josiah Stoll by a certain title. It could be, it could be though that Purple is adding that Deacon Stoll um, title because he's not recording this until 1877. Regardless, okay, go ahead with your thought. All right, just that for Deacon or Josiah Stoll to say, I positively know it to be true that he can look 50 feet under the earth. He can't know that's true. Not unless Joseph Smith said, I see something 50 feet below the surface of the earth, and they dug down and they found it. He still wouldn't be able to testify that he knows it's true, but he would be able to testify to the facts. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the way the way I read that question from the judge, because I've seen questions like this asked before, is he asks him, do you really believe this? And he reminds him of the solemn oath he's taking. Mm. The way I read that is really the the judge isn't questioning him at all. The judge is calling bullshit. That's the Mm. way I'm reading his question. Yeah, that makes sense to me. But then there's more from Purple's account. 
There is. So Jonathan Thompson was one of the diggers that worked on this project with Joseph. And so Purple records his testimony this way. Quote, he could not assert that anything of value was ever obtained by them. So that's very important. This man is testifying in defense of Joseph Smith, and he could not assert that anything of value was ever obtained as a result of these gifts. Then he continues. The following scene was described by this witness and carefully noted. Smith had told the deacon, that would be Stoll, that very many years before, a band of robbers had buried on his flat a box of treasure. And as it was very valuable, they had by a sacrifice placed a charm over it to protect it so that it could not be obtained except by faith, accompanied by certain talismanic influences. So after arming themselves with fasting and prayer, they sallied forth to the spot designated by Smith. Digging was commenced with fear and trembling in the presence of this imaginary charm. In a few feet from the surface, the box of treasure was struck by the shovel, on which they redoubled their energies, but it gradually receded from their grasp. One of the men placed his hand upon the box, but it gradually sank from his reach. After some five feet in depth had been attained without success, a council of war against this spirit of darkness was called, and they resolved that the lack of faith or some untoward mental emotion was the cause of their failure. And again, I just want to say, since I looked at both of these accounts personally, there is the same exact type of testimony from Jonathan Thompson recorded in Justice Neely's notes about a sinking treasure. Right. Now, as incredible as this testimony is that Jonathan, what's his name? Jonathan Thompson gives? Correct. It's all completely admissible in court because he's testifying. I was there. This is what happened. I saw it. I heard it. I was a part of this. So regardless of how hard it may be to believe for some people, it's completely admissible. Yeah. And I I want to really focus on that how hard is this to believe part, right? Because this testimony, whether it came into court or not, which it did, like there is no sinking treasure and there's no magic rocks, right? So this testimony offered in favor of Joseph Smith to me is much more damning and a much more interesting part of this whole ordeal in Joseph Smith's life than to debate the question of whether or not he was convicted. Right. And so you don't need me to say this, but I'll say it for anybody who needs it is that just because evidence is admissible in court has nothing to do with whether it's true. Yeah, I think that's a good way to tie it up. Yeah. It's supposed to be a way of making sure that it's more reliable, that it's not unreliable, that it's more reliable. But that's why we have cross-examination, and that's why we have a jury of 12 presumably reasonable people to evaluate the testimony and the credibility of witnesses. And the reason, of course, this becomes very important as far as 404B evidence about Joseph Smith, is that we know the church's narrative because we've heard it ever since we joined the church. And many times thereafter is that Joseph Smith found gold finally, except they wouldn't say finally. He found gold in the form of gold plates. It was buried under the earth. It was guarded by an angel. And that was his job to protect the plates. And that Joseph Smith then was able to translate these plates by putting a seer stone in a hat and putting his face over the hat and then being able to translate and read what was on the plates through some miraculous means. That is very similar to the idea of prior to this, Joseph Smith being involved on multiple occasions with taking his hat, putting a seer stone in it, putting his face over the hat, and finding the location where treasure was buried, and then going out with a bunch of gentlemen who would then dig, and they wouldn't find anything. And the fact that they never found anything indicates that his power was more pretended than real, which certainly should inform our decision 
as to whether his subsequent claim that he found gold plates and translated them by the same method, and the gold plates were protected by a guardian spirit just the same way the other treasures were prior to this. That is sufficiently similar enough, I think, to be admissible in evidence for a jury to consider his credibility when he's making the claim about the Book of Mormon plates. Yeah, and the additional data point I would give that I think supports this this common plan scheme is that so here we have testimony of sinking you know sinking treasure that same story is in the book of mormon itself in helaman i think samuel the lamanite warns about sinking and slippery treasures that they won't be able to hold on to it and that's where that's where again we come to this issue of a double bind in my mind you to to hold these things as reality to to vindicate Joseph Smith on this you have to either believe in sinking treasure which is in the book of mormon so i think presumably you would and then you would have to ask your question so why is there no sinking treasure or why do they not use the seer stone to dig for treasure today or you're left with the other unpalatable alternative which is just the explanation is that this just is a work of fiction and imagination Right. And then we get subsequent statements by people like, I think it was Martin Harris, who indicates that Joseph Smith found the gold plates by using his seer stone and putting it in a hat and that they had digged in multiple locations before finding it. Right. And I think one last um, note I want to give on the 1826 Bainbridge trial is in the Justice Neely's notes version of Stoll's account. He does give one example of Joseph finding something, and this is where he finds the feather. And what Joseph Smith had said is he used the rock and the hat. And one of the ways I think he helped convince Stowell that this project to look for the lost silver mine was was worthwhile and that he actually had this gift was he used the rock and the hat to find a, I think it was just like a, tr- a chest of treasure he talked about. And with the chest, he said that they would find a feather. And as they dig, they find no evidence of the chest. And I think we get the, the the typical, we didn't do the rituals in the right way type of you know thing. But they do find the feather. And I want to give props to Dan Vogel for this. Um, his real theory behind Joseph Smith and, and the whole pious fraud theory really relies on the finding of this feather to say that Joseph Smith, at least in this one instance, was willfully engaging in deception, that the finding of the feather shows that it wasn't just a work of imagination or delusion, that there was some intentionality. And we talked about this a little bit last time with contemporary church leaders, right? What's worse, um, delusion or intentional misrepresentation? Mm -hmm. And so I think we can see that here with Joseph Smith. The one um, other note, I guess we talked about the similarity between the two testimonies, the Justice Neely's notes version of Thompson's testimony is where we get one of the stories of sacrificing, of animal sacrifice connected with these treasure digs. The dog? It was a, a sheep. A sheep in this case. Okay, yes. Yeah. So, right. And of course, this goes without saying as well, but I'm going to say it anyway, is that if you're digging underground, you're going to find a lot of things. You're going to find a lot of dirt. You're going to find a lot of rocks. The one thing you're probably not going to find is a feather, right? So right. if there's a feather underground, that itself is miraculous. That, well, it's certainly unusual. And that Joseph Smith could know that there was a feather underground in association with this other treasure chest. Well, of course, they dig and presumably, come on, I'm a magician from way back. Joseph Smith plants the feather. He either finds it himself or what's more effective to have the other people find it. And though they don't find the treasure, now suddenly the feather shows that Joseph Smith 
does have this power. This is like William Fugate. By the way, I did look up um, Sweeney. You're right. His first name is John. I had said Michael earlier. So John Sweeney, I'll try and remember that for future reference. But- I know my I know my British people. <laughs> well, William Fugate with the Kinderhook plates, right? He had had those created. He put them at the bottom of this mound and put them underneath a stone at the bottom, right? It had already been partially dug into. And so he finally goes to the bottom of this sort of chimney stack hole that's been dug down into it, puts the plates under a rock so it can look like they were there all along. And he's got people going out there and he's with them and they're digging around and they're doing all this stuff. And he's probably pulling his hair out because they're not finding it. It's like, come on, guys. I made it as easy for you to find as possible. Turn over the stinking rock. And none of them do. So he has to do the next best thing, which is while they're still there, he pretends to look around. He turns over the rock and says, oh, look what I found, the Kinderhook plates. And I imagine a very similar thing happened with Joseph Smith and the feather. Well, and there were Mormons on that dig with with Fugate, which there's a very important piece connected to this with the way that confidence men typically behave, right? Which is they give you the thing that you already expect to find. And that's why people find it more credible. They're primed to find it more credible. I'll also highlight this is one of the reasons that Mark Hoffman's forgeries were so successful is because he didn't create these documents out of whole cloth. He knew Mormon church history well enough to know that these were documents that were referenced by extant documents that we already had. And so he created them to help fill the gaps that people already expected these documents would be found at some point or that they had existed at some point. And that's one of the reasons he was able to convince people, aside from the technical work behind what went behind the fraud, but there was a very important piece of this confidence man-like behavior of, I am filling a need that you have that I can see. And I think Joe Smith did the same thing repeatedly. You're right. To use an absurd example, if Mark Hoffman, with all of his skill, nevertheless came up with a document written by, oh, let's just say it's from W.W. Phelps, talking about how a starship came overhead and then a Vulcan and a really good looking guy who was Captain Kirk came down and they give the plates to Joseph Smith. Regardless of how effective he was at forging documents, that story would never have been believed by anybody. But what he did have was access to these other documents that the church was sitting on. They're not getting a lot of publicity, but the real historians know about them, including a story from Joseph Smith's dad to somebody else. And it's an early document that talks about a toad in the hole that transformed itself into a man and struck Joseph Smith upside the head when he went to get the plates. So he knows about that. He changes toad to salamander, puts it in the context of another document, and he's off and running. Right. And I think that's exactly right. And I think it's one of the big reasons that his, you know, his big work that he was working on at the time that he murdered those people was the McClellan collection, right? We know that McClellan had all these papers and we know that one of the things he was hoping to do was create a version of the lost 116 pages because people have looked for those for centuries and centuries. And we know that they're a figure in early church history. And so I think to kind of tie a bow on this piece of impeachment by prior conviction and to connect it to what we talked about with 404B, I think particularly when it comes to the 1826 class looking trial, there's been so much ink spilled unnecessarily over the issue of whether or not Joseph Smith was convicted. The reality is the testimony offered in his defense 
if you believe in his prophetic gift, read that testimony and determine for yourself, like, is this reality? Because to me, when I started to read this testimony still, as I'm in the middle of a faith crisis, I realized, like, I don't believe in these things. Like, I don't believe in sinking treasures and magic rocks. But these things are so foundational, as you've said, they're so foundational to the the church's historical roots and the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, that it's not something that I would recommend people just don't dig into if they really care about following the truth. Right. But from an apologetic point of view, if I'm an apologist, then what I would want people to do is to be arguing over a side issue that really doesn't make any difference instead of looking at this other stuff, which is what really happened at the trial. The side issue being, was it a conviction? Was it not a conviction? And I've seen enough papers about that to know that's a very fruitful side issue while trying to keep people from looking at what the testimony was, because the testimony is there regardless of whether it was a conviction or whether it wasn't a conviction. By the way, two lawyers speaking to one another, the least thing that's important to me in assessing something uh, about another individual is whether they were convicted at trial. Because believe it or not, trials can end up with incorrect convictions. They can end up with incorrect acquittals. So I've been doing this long enough, which is almost 33 years now. I'm not very impressed with convictions or acquittals, but I'm certainly interested in what the evidence was that was presented at the trial itself. Yeah, that's a really good point. So I think our last little rule that we wanted to talk about as far as impeachment goes is rule 613, impeachment by prior inconsistent statements. And here's the reality of dealing with this rule, okay, is that we could create probably an entire two or three part podcast of examples just on this one where church leaders have given completely inconsistent direction. The idea in a courtroom is that if I take the stand and I'm testifying that X, Y, and Z happened, that at an earlier date, I had said that A, B, and C happened, I am going to get cross-examined about that. And I'm probably going to get read those previous statements I had made, and I'm going to need to explain why there are discrepancies. If I can go back to the example I talked about earlier with the uh, expert who was testifying that no breath sample can be reliable from one of the trials I had tried. One of the issues that really blasted his credibility is he had done different versions of his expert report, which are a, a version of inconsistent statements. He had done different versions of an expert report that had used the wrong person's name, the wrong numbers. It just showed general sloppy work. And so I got to lay all this out in front of the jury because they are inconsistent statements. And it was one of the things that I think helped obliterate that person's uh, credibility. Right. So prior inconsistent statements, this whole idea is something that the church wants to absolve itself from dealing with. So there are so many prior inconsistent statements. The idea is not just Joseph Smith himself, where you have prior inconsistent statements. And a classic example would be if you're going to talk about the 1838 account of the first vision, the official account, the one we all know and love, then that immediately opens the door to admission of the 1832 account as a prior inconsistent statement, or at least it can be argued. And I think reasonably so that it's a prior inconsistent statement. So in evaluating the credibility of the 1838 statement, a jury should be able to see the 1832 statement as well under that theory. And it would be admissible in court under that theory. But on a broader scale, all the presidents of the church are taught to be speaking for the Lord, the Lord presumably being the one ultimate witness. 
And the one that we would also presume is going to be consistent and say the same things to his prophets, which raises the issue of what happens when the different prophets, and I'm just going to talk about the leaders of the church, the prophets over the course of 200 years. What happens when they say things that are inconsistent with each other? And there's a host of things like that. We won't go into that now. We've covered many of them in other podcasts. However, the church doesn't like that. And therefore, in 1980 or 81, Ezra Taft Benson came out with 14 fundamentals of following the prophet. I don't think he created the idea, but he certainly made it famous that the living prophet is the only one who speaks for God that we need to follow. Dead prophets, don't worry about them, all right? Because we don't follow dead prophets. We follow living prophets, even if those dead prophets are the prophets immediately prior to the current prophet, even if it's President Hinckley and President Monson. Now it's President Nelson. Well, so, and can I pause you right there? Please. He, uh, one of the fundamentals, one of the pieces of the, I can't remember if it's a separate fundamental or the same one. He even goes so far as to say that a living prophet trumps scripture itself. And we can see that the church believes this in the way they behave. So I know, for example, after Bill Reel's excommunication, the general handbook has changed the way that they do excommunications and the involvement of the state high council, even though that's required in the, essentially the constitution of the church, the it's DNC, what, 20? I think so. About which part? Oh, the constitution of the church? That's yeah, that's, a, that's essentially the governing articles of the way the church is supposed to, to run. Yes. And it's what's located today as DNC 20. And it requires the use of the stake high council in an excommunication. But church policy through a handbook can apparently just trump that um, trump that scriptural direction. Right. 20 is the articles of the church. The Constitution is either 42 or 45. But the one you're talking about, maybe Section 107 later on. But anyway, yes, it's very clear. You have the, the state presidency, you have the high council. They hear the evidence. Of course, they've departed from the way it's supposed to be presented. And you have six of the high council who represent the accused and six who represent the other party. And they're supposed to argue on their behalf. That doesn't happen anymore. And that was codified in the handbook of instructions. Then after Bill Real goes and gets excommunicated, he goes through his disciplinary process. At some point after that, they changed that and said, it's only going to be the state presidency who's present for these. And maybe on certain occasions, the other 12 in the high council will be present. But the rule is now it's just the state presidency, which I consider to be the Bill Real corollary to the original rule. Because even at the time, I'm talking to Bill before he goes in, and I'm saying, it has got to be the worst idea in the world to take 15 of your top priesthood leadership in a stake, put them in the same room with Bill Real, and then give Bill Real half an hour or 45 minutes to say whatever it is he wants to say. That's like the old thing about Star Trek, right? One of the rules of Star Trek, everything I, I learned, I learned from Star Trek, never put all of your top leadership in one shuttlecraft, which, of course, they do all the time. Why would you do that? You would never do that. So I, I'm glad they woke up and figured out that wasn't a good idea and changed it. But we can see that happening and how real world events end up influencing what the church does. Now, there was one other thing that I wanted to say about this. Oh, yes. Back to Ezra Tap Benson. Living prophets trump dead prophets. Of course, they trump the scripture because the scripture is written by dead prophets. The only reason it would ever occur to anybody, including Ezra Taft Benson, to even think of putting this as a principle of the church, right? Is because there are conflicts. If there were never any conflicts, you would never say it. You would never even think of saying it. 
This is a way to try and prioritize and do away with prior inconsistent statements by profits with the current profit. So what they're trying to do is say, even though prior inconsistent statements are admissible in court to impeach a witness, we're not going to have that here. We're just going to take that entire rule, shove it off the table, and you don't get to look at what anybody else said. You only get to listen to what we say now. Yeah, it would basically be just discrediting anything that had ever been said before. I think that's a good point. And I think, you know, we don't know exactly when this will air, but I think having listened to last week's Mormonism Live, one of the points, I can't remember if you or Bill made it, but you examined times that the church leaders have encouraged violence. And one of the points that you made that I think is something that really echoes in my mind because of my experience with the legal system is that when judges decide a case and they change the rules of the game on everybody. So let's say the Supreme Court of the United States hears a case that is specifically someone is challenging the rules of the game that we all operate under. And that happens all the time. When the court changes the rules, they tell you they change the rules. They tell you this specific case that stood for this proposition is overturned and it can no longer be relied on. That is the way I think a healthy system makes change so that people know the rules that they're operating on under. Does the church have anything like that? Not that I've ever seen. They really try and sweep under the rug statements that they don't want to deal with, don't want to reconcile, don't want people to think about. They don't just come out and disavow those things with very, very, very rare exception. Uh, They just want people to pretend like they don't exist. Right. Which, of course, leads people like me who are interested to research, find out these prior inconsistent statements, whether it's blood atonement or whatever, and say, oh, this is the real scoop. This is the real truth. Why don't the leaders today talk about it? Well, they must believe it. So they don't talk about it because they don't feel like they can. Yeah. I think the last thought I had about prior inconsistent statements is, I think you know, and I think I've told the listeners maybe on our last episode, my last calling before I went through my faith crisis is I was the adult gospel doctrine teacher for all four standard works. So I made it through all four. And one of the things that I remember very vividly is I was very comfortable with, because we're taught so often that the gospel was revealed line upon line, I was very comfortable with letting scripture contradict other scripture. And I'll give you a classic example. In Alma, I can't remember the exact chapter, but Alma talks about how at the day you leave this life, you know, therein is the great day where you can no longer repent. This it's day actually, of darkness. Sorry, interrupting. It's actually Amulek and it's uh, Alma 34, but he's Alma's okay. missionary companion. It's in Alma. Sorry, that's what I meant. It's in Alma about how there's this great day of darkness. I, in the past, probably would have tried to reconcile that with like, like found some weird mental backflippy way to explain how, no, 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 what Alma really meant is X, Y, Z. I think it is very misguided to continue to try and do that, even from a believing member's perspective, because we're taught that the truth evolves over time in the sense that it's revealed line upon line. We need to be more comfortable with allowing for scripture and allowing for prophetic statements to stand for what they stand for and not try and fit them and reconcile them all and pretend like they're reconcilable. The one that always comes to my mind 
um, because I wrestled with it so often, is in Messiah 15 when Abinadi talks uh, talks in a very Trinitarian uh, modalist view of the Godhead. And I must have read and thought about that scripture for years and could never come to a satisfying, like, click reconciliation in my mind. Because you were trying to reconcile it with what the church teaches today, right? Exactly. And I think, and this really isn't a critical or believing perspective thing. It's just my, my admonition to people would be that we do not have to try and reconcile all of scripture. We really don't because we're taught that it comes line upon line. And so those conflicts should be okay. And we need to figure out how to navigate those conflicts. And I think the church still has work to do there. But I would just invite people to rethink that approach to scripture that they always have to be standing for what the church teaches today. It's okay that Alma didn't know about the spirit world, I guess, is the point I would make if you're still a believing member. Okay, very good. Yeah, I know it's a little bit off topic, but that was 30 years ago or so now. When I finally had that breakthrough and I came to that same realization that instead of trying to make everything that was said in all the standard works and by current leaders all harmonize into one great whole to allow people to have their different opinions and their different views, even if they didn't agree, because then I suddenly realized that I am actually getting more to the heart of what it is that the speaker or the author is trying to say by letting them speak for themselves instead of trying to fit whatever it is they say into a preconceived box of modern Mormon doctrine, where often it did not fit very well at all, unless I really jumped up and down on it and crammed it in by trying to do all these mental gymnastics that I think you're referring to. Exactly. I think we just need to become more comfortable with this idea that uh, of saying such and such leader, it certainly appears like they taught this thing that we no longer teach today. And we just don't teach that anymore. (laughs) Instead of trying to come up with some weird explanation for why it actually is completely consistent with the way that we teach things today. Right. And that would be the much healthier, more obvious and transparent, dare I use the word, way of doing things, which is we are overruling the Adam-God theory rather than denying that it was ever taught and really not talking about it very much at all anymore. The last time it was really talked about was back in the 1970s and perhaps early 80s in General Conference when it was a hot-button issue. But instead of doing that, I mean, let me just say, if we did that, everybody would know that it was taught. Everybody would know it was taught by a prophet. But at least they would know that it's been disavowed specifically, and we don't believe that, we don't teach that anymore, which would keep people from going back and finding it and going, oh my gosh, this must be the true stuff, because the church never talks about it. And it was said by a prophet of God named Brigham Young. Right. But of course, they can't do that. They've got themselves in their own double bind of their own making, which is they can't do that because they have already posited that presidents of the church are prophets who speak for God. And therefore, they can't really be contradicting an earlier church leader who speaks as a prophet because then God is contradicting himself. He being the ultimate witness who's supposed to be communicating through his prophets. Right. And that's one of the reasons that they don't address these things, like you said, more healthily. I think I'm going to jump to our next work. We're going to skip our Daubert analysis for just one second, because I think this and our point three that we wanted to look at today, they connect. I tell you what, Colby. Yes. We've been going at this two hours. We may have to do a part three. Uh, And I want everybody to know, here's the problem. We could have done all of part two in the second part of two hours. Unfortunately, Colby, who has an active mind, who's continuously thinking about things, came up with more ideas to add to the original part two of the outline, which now makes it so that we can't get it all in two hours. 
So I'm going to suggest the part three, Colby. Is that okay with you? I think that is that works for me if it works for you. Well, this is what we're going to have to get to is the expert witness stuff, that Daubert test and what we call here in Washington, the Fry test for expert witnesses when they qualify as a witness, when they can testify as a witness. And here's my directive to you. If you will be directed by me, Colby, don't think about this anymore. Don't add anything to this outline, okay? Because if you keep thinking, we're never going to get done with this. And we'll be at part 100 this time next year. Yeah, I, that's definitely true. The more you deal with stuff at work or you deal with follow-on questions, more and more connections, I think, are found. Um, I promise I won't add anything more. Can I give a brief preview of what we still have to talk about? Would you? And then I'll have something to hold you to. Perfect. So we are going to talk about Daubert and specifically how we're going to talk about Daubert and expert testimony is we are going to talk about apologetics and we're going to talk specifically about older school apologetics. And I want to make that clear. Um, I don't, I, after Patrick Mason appeared on uh, Mormon stories a few months ago, I exchanged some emails with him and I'm going to be honest. I'm a big fan of softer apologetics from people like Jim Bennett. Patrick Mason, the Givens, even uh, Richard Bushman, even though we kind of criticized one of his statements last time, because they're more forthright and honest. So we're really going to focus on some older school apologetics. And you didn't want to name people earlier, but I'm going to do it now. We're going to talk about John Gee, some apologetics from Daniel Peterson and uh, Sorensen, John Sorensen. Next, we're going to talk about this connected idea of arguments in the alternative and the weakness of post hoc justifications, because this is a legal thing that comes up all the time. And the way this connects to the church is that the church constantly, as it shifts its narrative, is making post hoc justifications that maybe they would have flown if that would have been the church's argument in the first place. But they're not. They're basically the idea of an argument in the alternative. And we'll talk about what permissible arguments in the alternative are next time. But the idea is that sometimes you have to just pick one horse and ride that one horse. And the church, when it constantly shifts its narratives, as it's been doing with the release of the essays in particular, it just shows that there's not a lot of credibility there. And then we will conclude with talking about probably the biggest thing, and this is in answer to the question, how do I talk about these concepts with believing members? And that's where we're going to talk about the burden of proof fallacy. We're going to talk about standards of evidence. And that's where I'm really just going to invite people to think about what do they view as sufficient evidence to reach a conclusion? And that it's often more kind of, as you said, as we were talking about conviction, it is much more interesting to me today to talk with people about why they have reached the conclusions they have, particularly about Mormonism, rather than to just hear about the conclusions they've reached, right? I want to hear why, especially people who've wrestled with some of these difficult historical and theological questions, why they have reached the conclusion they've reached. And that's really the whole point of both this discussion and then the ongoing like blog entries that I've been going through is helping share my perspective with other people to view these legal concepts that we can pull from the field as tools to help us determine fact, to help us reach conclusions. For those of the listeners who are interested in reading what you've written, where can they find those articles? Yeah, so the blog is www.mormonismontrial.com. 
And I do weekly entries every Monday. Um, they're trying to be short and accessible. And like I said, they are not about just challenging, believing members, despite I, I named it that way because it was a catchy name. And also because I want people who are ready to try and think about the way they think about things to come to this site. I don't want it to be just let me confront my believing friends and family with this website. Th- those sites, I'm not disparaging them. Those sites have a lot of value, but that's not what this is about. This is about looking at the legal field, taking lessons from the legal field and talking about them in relation to the church. So for example, this last Monday's uh, blog entry was about the idea of spoliation or willful destruction of evidence and talking about the Newell, or sorry, not Newell, the um, the letters that Joseph Smith wrote to the Whitney family about, and then using that to analyze Joseph Smith's polygamy. So for people who want to go there, one of the other uh, requests we had come in on Reddit after I'd posted our first episode was to put at least skeletal outlines of what we've talked about on the blog. So I'll be doing that in the in the next week. So okay, really great. That sounds exciting. Well, it looks like we're going to be meeting again, maybe next weekend, if you're available. I'm available. All right. Wherever there's cops beating up a guy, I'll be there. <laughs> That's my motto. That's right. Wherever there's Mormon history to dig into, uh, I'll be there. <laughs> Very good. Colby Reddish, thanks again so much for joining us here on Radio Free Mormon. Look forward to having you back for part three and only, only part three. Okay. This isn't Mormon stories. This is Radio Free Mormon. And we need to remember that. Thanks, Arthur. (laughs) All right. Have a great day. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon signing off the air. (laughs) 